0: Is uh, Court Y from Boston, Massachusetts. Howdy. I'm Court. I'm still an alcoholic. Nice to be here with you guys tonight. And uh, <coughs> I just have a, a habit of reading this before I... Uh, uh, speak. This is from page 29 of the big book. Uh, it's just basically about how each individual in their personal stories describes in their own language. Why do I, why do I say I'm going to read it and then paraphrase? What's the point of that? I don't know. I just read it. Uh, we hope no one will consider these self revealing accounts in bad taste. Uh, I I just need to come here really the only thing I have to offer is I'm I'm clever and I can be funny ha ha ho ho but really the only thing of any value I have to offer is the truth and uh, that's why I I plan on telling you that's my plan Uh, (laughs) I generally catch myself uh, mid-lie and reverse Um, really the only thing I have to offer is the truth I hope not to offend anybody but, uh, you know, sometimes the truth isn't necessarily uh, pretty. Uh, I, I actually don't know anybody in AA whose truth is pretty. Who got us there? Maybe it's a little different than Al-Anon. I, I, I doubt it. <laughs> but, but, uh, but maybe. I want to thank you guys for inviting me, uh, the committee, and whoever uh, uh, asked me to come. It was, uh, it was very nice, and I appreciate Ronell... Uh, Reynel changing her schedule to, uh, to fit me. I was supposed to speak tomorrow. And you know, you had a perfectly planned Al-Anon conference. <laughs> and you had to go invite an AA <laughs> to louse the whole thing up. So I really appreciate uh, you guys uh, twisting things around and, and uh, making it possible for me to to be here today. So thanks for that. Uh, I got sober in 1996. I was 30. I I know I only look about 25 now, so it's confusing. (laughs) When you laugh at that, it hurts me. (laughs) And I I don't really know what was different about uh, that day than any other day, to be honest with you. It was one of those days I was at the end of my rope, but there were frankly a lot of those days. So I don't know what made that day any different. But I, uh, I woke up one day, <clears throat> and uh, to give you a little uh, idea of my mindset at the time, when I would wake up, I was 30, but I'd be like, shit, I didn't die in my sleep, you know, when I woke up. And when, when you're 30, that's, that's not a really great way to, to wake up. And uh, when I would walk down the street in my house in Malden, Mass., And living in Malden in and of itself is depressing enough without the uh, added bonus of alcoholism. But when I walked down the street in Malden, Mass, uh, the train station that goes into Boston was at the end of my street. It was about five blocks. And on the days I thought that that was going to be the day that I'd be able to get up the courage to step in front of the Orange Line instead of on it, I'd actually have a spring in my step. I'd cheer up. You know, all three birds in Malden would be chirping and singing. And I'd feel pretty good, just thinking like, man, I won't have to wake up tomorrow feeling like this all over again. And inevitably, I'd get to the platform, and I'd think of my friends. Uh, now, Now, I've got the same friends, for the most part, that I've had since high school, and a lot of the guys and gals that I knew in college I'm still friends with, uh, wonderful people. My best friends are, are, have been my best friend for over 20 years. And, uh, you know, I'd think of these people. And then I'd think of my family. I have a big family. And i think of my dad. I'm very close to my, my kooky dad. And uh, I'd be on that platform, and I couldn't go through with it, and I'd get depressed, you know, all over again. Uh One day, I I just woke up, and uh, I don't know why, a lot of thoughts just come to me, just came to me. They didn't necessarily make sense or have anything to do with any other thoughts that I was thinking at the time. They just sort of zoomed into my head. So the thought came to me that my grandfather died at 93 or 92. He died at 90, he was 92 years old, he died in 1993, and it dawned on me That he only died because he got cancer in his leg and it spread and and killed him pretty quickly. But uh, when I was 92, they'd probably have a cure for cancer. I was going to live forever. I was never going to die. And I was going to feel exactly the way I felt at that moment every day for the rest of my life. And uh, that was about the most terrifying thought that I had ever had. Now, sometimes people get confused when uh, you try to describe a a suicidal mindset. And uh, when you're suicidal, it's not because you're courageous enough to kill yourself or you're too cowardly to go on living life. Being that uh, low in the depths of despair has nothing to do with courage or cowardice. It has everything to do with hopelessness. And the notion that this just isn't ever going to change. And if this is as good as it's going to get, what is the point? You know, what is the point of going forward? And, and I felt that way a lot of the time. You know, what is the point of going forward? Uh, you know, I, I don't know what was different about that day, except it was so overwhelming that uh, I just got down on my knees at the end of my bed and, and said a prayer. Uh, And a lot, you know, most spiritual journeys begin with a prayer. You know, mine happened to be laced with profanity. It doesn't have to be that way. (laughs) But mine was something like, uh, you know, God, I don't really believe in you, but if there's anything out there, just please help me. That was pretty much the sum total of my prayer. Please help me. Uh, I didn't really believe in anything, and... uh, I don't know what you know what was going on. It says in the big book that deep down inside of each of us is the fundamental uh, belief in some greater, higher power, and uh, I, I guess that was what was coming through. I don't know. I, I didn't really have any beliefs. Uh, I was forced to go to church as a kid, but I didn't really have any relationship with any sort of uh, higher power or even with my own religion or any of that stuff. And For many years, I had nothing to do with anything. So, um, you know, I I said that prayer, and something happened. I don't really know what, but uh, I got up, and I felt, I can't say I felt good, but I felt less bad. I felt a little less bad. I felt like maybe 10 or 20 pounds had been taken off my shoulder. I still had like 1,000 pounds on it, but I felt a little bit lighter. And I did something different, something I hadn't done before. I took positive, constructive action for the first time in my life. The next day, I went down to a mental health clinic, and I I said, uh, I'm homicidal and suicidal, except I left out the homicidal part because I thought they may lock me up, you know, and throw the key away. They didn't really need to know that. So... um, and when I say homicidal, I don't mean I was walking around, ooh, I'm gonna, I'd like to kill that guy. I mean, I was thinking about killing people. It, it, was, it was vivid. I was being framed at work. I had just started working at this place, and the guy who uh, was the boss had been robbing the place blind. He was a bad guy. And uh, he started working on me the day I got in the door. And in a very short period of time, I was really paranoid, losing my marbles, uh, second-guessing myself. I've always been a real nerd with numbers and very good with numbers. And uh, I'm really, you know, I'd count a stack of bills seven times. Uh, I was really losing my marbles. And, you know, and I was thinking it was a pretty good idea to get this guy off the planet, you know. Um, So fortunately, I went down to this place, and um, over the next several months, I met with this counselor and uh, lied about how much I drank on a weekly basis. But for me, that was that was a lot of improvement, even talking about any of this stuff. And, um, you know, I didn't want her to, to focus on alcohol. I was like, that's not the problem. I don't want, you know, if I tell this lady how much I drank, she's just going to say, kid, you're probably a drunk go to AA and then I'd have to kill myself because I wasn't I wasn't gonna stop drinking. I mean suicide is is serious business, but stopping drinking (laughs) come on, let's not get kooky. So and, and you know, ironically I was I was more right than I knew. Alcohol was not my problem. You know, alcohol was my solution. Alcohol was what I had used to treat alcoholism successfully for a period of time and unsuccessfully for a period of time. But alcohol is what I had used to treat alcoholism. And my problem wasn't that I was a guy with a drinking problem. Uh, because if that's the case, you could just remove the alcohol and it would be no more problem. Uh, actually, when I got sober, my problems were, were perhaps worse uh, because I had not uh, no anesthetics left. That really worked. I mean, you know, you can use other anesthetics because I have a lot of knee-jerk anesthetics. You know, resentment is a great way of taking the gun out of my mouth and pointing it at somebody else. And, uh, you know, resentment keeps me alive until it begins to kill me. You know, and I have a lot of these little alcoholic tools that I use to navigate uh, through life that worked for a time and then, and then ceased uh, to work. So over a period of time, this lady was smart enough to let me figure out for myself that alcohol was probably part of the problem. I'm one of the very fortunate people that since the first day I uh, set foot in an AA meeting, have have never drank. And it's not because I'm clever or I I figured something out. It's it's because uh, I was so extremely ill that I actually did what I was told. That's how sick I was. You've got to be pretty sick when you're an alky to do what somebody tells you. So uh, I was sober a very short period of time, about a month, and you know, every day you know, I was obsessing about drinking and gambling and anything that zipped through my head, and, and uh, women, except I was terrified of women. I didn't realize until I was 30 that I had never had sex with anybody sober. I had dated people for years. I went on with one girl for three and a half years, the poor woman. And I, had, and I didn't realize that until I stopped drinking. I'm like, wow, uh, this is not good. <laughs> you know, this is a bad plan. So I was sober about uh, 30 days. And uh, out of, completely out of my mind, my uh, buddy's wife, who was 10 years sober, was my first uh, example of, uh, you know, the walking big book, as some of us call it, uh, where she was, you know, uh, a representation of, uh, you know, the, the recovery that's promised in the book. This woman was well. She was living a good, happy life. She enjoyed herself. She had been going to the same parties I had been going to with years and for years, and after a while, she was the only interesting person uh, to, to talk. I was no longer interesting to her. But she was the only interesting person. And I was like, you know, what's the secret? You're not drinking. And she, and she was sober, like, 10 years. And she's eight months pregnant and taking me to meetings in South Boston, uh, you know, in the ice and the snow. And it's miserably cold out. And this woman's taking me to, to a meeting on a Monday night. And uh, I, she, she really, I, uh, there have been so many uh, little links in the chain, so many angels that have just showed up. and and help me out at different times, Uh, and this woman was one of them. She took me to this meeting, and uh, I used to, uh, you know, sardonically say, geez, there wasn't a shot glass of recovery in that meeting. Uh, And now I look back and and realize that anybody that's sober is is doing something miraculous. If You're sober for a day and you're in alky, you're doing something amazing. Uh, And there was a guy in this meeting who got up, and he was uh, a member of the meeting. The meeting who didn't – they have what they call commitments, whatever, read his digest version. Commitment didn't show, and this guy who ended up sharing, he was a member of the group. And uh, he talked about being five years sober and being suicidal, miserable. And uh, just hating his life and I'm like oh my god five years sober I'm like I feel like that now but man five years of this I don't think I even want to be sober if it's going to be like this for for, for another month let alone five years I just can't stand it and uh, then he started talking about uh, doing some work and I was like okay I'm down with that as long as it doesn't involve God or the steps, I'm in. <laughs> because I, I might be homicidal and suicidal and an alcoholic, but let's not get carried away. And we don't want to overdo things. So um, he started taking me to meetings where they really focused on the solution uh, in, in the you know, which for for us is in, within the book, within the pages of Alcoholics Anonymous. And and I came in, and I really wanted to be the guy on page 84 of the book. Now, where I come from in the, a lot of the meetings, they read what they refer to as the promises. Now, there are promises littered throughout the entire book, but they focus on this particular pages, 83 and 84, um, and read them as the promises. And, and of course, it's very positive and wonderful. And I'd come in and I'd hear the promises, you know. And um, I'd, I'd wish I was living that life, you know. They talk about, geez, we'll lose interest and in selfish things, blah, blah, blah. Self-seeking will slip away. A whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Boy, did I need that, you know. Fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. I will intuitively know how to handle situations which baffled us and it, all this stuff, you know, geez, uh, that sounds good to me. And I'm like, how do I get that? I, I want to be, be there, you know. But where I was when I came to AA was in that painful, unmanageable uh, existence, which I created just by being me, you know, just by managing my life with an alcoholic mind and self-will. I created the unmanageable, painful existence of an alcoholic. Now, I'm not saying, it's my fault I created it, or it's my dad's fault. It's like only alcoholics would stand in the middle of a field with an arrow through the chest and say, where did that come from? I think it was that shrub. Who shot it? What angle did it? Let's get the arrow out. <laughs> Let's treat the wound. Let's start. It doesn't really matter how I got to that point. The, the point is, that's the way I am. You know, and I've always thought the way that I thought. There was never any point like, boy, if Sheila went out with me in third grade, none of this would have happened. <laughs> you know, that's not the way it was. So I came in and, and uh, I really wanted to be that guy on page 84, you know, and this was really kind of more where I was at. Page 52. We call it different things in different parts of the country. Some of us call it the bedevilments. You know I wrote my book, you know, "Is your life unmanageable?" Some people call it the drunk test sober test. It really has nothing to do with drinking. It has to do with unmanageability and a painful life. Um, you know I was having trouble with personal relationships, couldn't control my emotional nature, prey to misery and depression. I had a guy who took me through. And, and said, I want you to think about that. Pray to misery and depression with an E. P-R-E-Y. It means you're like a little mouse in the desert. And there's a couple of hawks circling above. Misery and depression. And there's no cactus in sight. There's no rock you can run under. And they can come down and grab you at any point in time. And, and that was really what, what my life was like. I never knew when I was just going to sink into a pit of depression from which I just didn't feel I was going to come back from. And it happened a lot. And I never had any control over when it happened. Um, You know, full of fear. And I'm like, full of fear? What are you talking about? I'll kill me and you. What could I possibly... Not in that order. (laughs) But I'll kill me and you. What could I possibly be afraid of? You know, everything. You know, everything. I later found out um, that uh, I was always reacting to fear. You know, that's how I created that, that life. You know, I, I uh, would be in a situation, I would react to it. And, um, you know, what would happen to me is something like this uh, a guy I like to call Silky, some folks call him Dr. Silkworth wrote a little paragraph, and he's a dude who just watched, like, 51,000 drunks and then just wrote what he saw. You know, he didn't know anything. He didn't have any answers. He didn't pretend to. He's like, listen, I've worked with 51,000 of you freaks. This is what I've seen. Don't add. That's all I know. You know? And he has a paragraph where he says, these allergic types, that's what he refers to us as, allergic types, allergic to alcohol, in that uh, once I started drinking, all bets were off. I drank without my own permission a lot of times. It wasn't in my best interest. I had a plan to drink a certain amount, and uh, that plan did not often come off that way. I I didn't understand later that once alcohol was in my body, I reacted differently than normal people. I thought the normal reaction was to continue to drink. Apparently, that's (laughs) not the case. These allergic types, I later found out that I'm allergic to life and the way that I react to it. I would have one problem. You know, he puts it it like, yeah, these allergic types, their problems seem to pile up and become astonishingly difficult to solve. And I'm like, yeah, that's me. And I go to the next paragraph for the answer, and it's not there because he doesn't know. You know, the next paragraph is... Fra the emotional appeal seldom suffices. Maybe some of you folks might know something about that. Fra the emotional appeal never worked on me either, you know. And uh, my problems piled up and became difficult to solve. Now I'd have one problem. I'd get to work on it with my keen alcoholic mind, and I've had three problems. (laughs) I'd get to work on it, and I've had five problems, and someone's pregnant. Apparently I'm implicated. (laughs) Then you know? I owe a guy with a middle name like the two grand that I don't really have right now, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm just trying to be happy. What's going? You know what? What's the problem? You know. And I later find out that uh, because of the way my mind works, my allergy to alcohol, and the way I react to life, this is what it is. This is this is the way it's going to be. I'm going to create page fifty-two, the unmanageable, painful existence. In my own life, just by being me and just by trying to navigate along. You know, later it talks about, uh, I, I mean, and, and I think that sometimes they're a little hurtful and insensitive in the book. Uh, they refer to my life skills as character defects. I don't think that's nice. Um, but when I came in, I was like, that was me. That, that And to me, that is dying a day at a time, living, living, feeling that way. Whether or not I'm drinking, if I'm drinking, it hurts a little less. But it, it, it still hurts. It doesn't get any better. And uh, I really wanted to be that guy on page 84, you know. I wanted to live, be feeling half decent. Really, the only reason I've ever done anything is to feel better. It's never been nobility Or I'm like, yeah, I really want, no. You know, it's always been to feel better. And, um, you know, I wanted to feel like the guy on page 84 felt and not that page 52. And later, I realized that the guy living the promises is the same jerk from page 52. (laughs) Same goofball. He's just done all the crap in between those pages (laughs) and become the guy on page 84. And I found it a little hard to believe, but things started to make a little bit of sense. Like, oh, well, that's why my sponsor, uh, he can articulate things that I'm feeling. And he, he, I can tell he's actually lived them. He's not, you know, coming off a, a, a sheet of paper. and disc- He's done this. He knows. He's experienced it. Yet he isn't there now. I began to see, oh, that's how. He's, he's been there, and he's been delivered from there. And what's in between those pages was, uh, you know, turned out to me to be a blueprint to wellness, directions on how to get well. And I didn't believe they were going to work, you know, but it doesn't really matter. You know, if somebody gives me the directions to bake an apple pie, a friend of mine used to say this, you know, you can think pizza till your butt falls off, (laughs) but you're going to get an apple pie. (laughs) You can do whatever you want, you don't have to believe it's going to be an apple pie. You don't have to like apple pie. That's what you're going to get. And, and that's what it's been like for me uh, working the steps in building a relationship with a higher power. I didn't want one. Who wants that? That's not fun. I'm thinking, man, if I, if I you know, this God stuff is scaring me, I'm going to shave my head. I'll be at the airport selling flour. I just had <laughs> crazy preconceived notions of what it was like. And I liken it to when you have a cell phone and you get caller ID and you see crazy numbers coming in at like 3.30 in the afternoon. And you're like, first of all, who's calling me during my day minutes? Secondly, (laughs) there's like a lot of eights and nines in this number. It's probably somebody trying to sell me something. Probably somebody trying to sell me a calling plan with more day minutes. And uh, you don't answer the phone for years. And then finally you answer, your, and it's like a, a billionaire uncle who wants to leave me an island, you know? I'm like, oh, that's what it is. That, that's what building a relationship with God has been like for me. I'm like, oh, that's what it is. I just got to be myself. I didn't know that it was the whole, the whole task, was finding out who I am and then being that person, fulfilling the role that I'm not the guy my dad planned. You know, my da- it didn't quite work out the way he had drawn it up. But, uh, you, know, uh, you know, this is getting off target, but we're very close friends, and uh, and he loves me the way I am now, but it wasn't always that way. You know, he kind of had a different blueprint in mind. But my job is to be me, not to be who I think I should be or who I, I uh, think is going to make somebody else happy is to find out who I am and be that person. And really the steps have given me that, that uh, ability and opportunity. So when I came in and, and uh, I, I, was, I had that unmanageable life, I, I really wasn't sure why and what I knew things were, I'm like, gee, how's my life going to get better if I just stop drinking? That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And I, and I was right. You know, that was a step in the right direction. But for a guy like me, who's a chronic alcoholic, uh, that's not going to be enough. Uh, and, and the problem w- with uh, alcoholics is that they're insane. You know, I'm, in, I'm not well. I'm mentally ill. I could say I have a lot of, uh, you know, synonyms for, for men, being mentally ill. But, you know, they go outright mental defective in the book doesn't mean I'm dumb or I, I can't uh, think well it means when I'm infected with alcoholism my brain doesn't really work very well and um, you know so, sometimes you know there was a uh, this is kind of neat there was a there were a couple of people who came up to me before the meeting and knew people that I knew and who were very uh, you know uh, important in my own sobriety it's such a, a small world and you uh, You know, James was mentioning to me a guy that I I got an awful lot out of. And and I hate quoting other people because I I should just share my own experience. But this guy used to say, We don't shoot our wounded. You know, we don't shoot the wounded. And, uh, you know, there's this uh, incredible inner drive from alcoholism to just destroy myself and uh you know that that needs to be uh stopped we got to stop the insanity with that so um what I was was uh blessed to do was I was taken to the solution very soon i was about 3 months sober and i started really rigorously working on this and and, uh, and it made me uh happy to know i could contribute to my own sobriety and wellness and it was going to be uh, not up to me to heal myself, but up to me to, to put in some work. And it made me happy to know that I could I could do something about what was wrong with me. Um, you wouldn't take a guy with cancer out in the street and bludgeon him. You know, you'd treat the cancer. So th- that's what uh, my sponsor did with me. He, he didn't, you know, I didn't have one of these baton march sponsors that was a tough guy. I hated myself so much. Uh, that 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 in different sponsors help different people in different ways, and, and we need all of them, but that isn 't exactly what I needed and The guy that I had just showed up all the time, he led by example, he did the number, you know, as a buddy of mine says he did the number, and uh, he showed me the blunt, horrific truth in a very gentle way, you know, and uh sometimes it didn 't feel gentle. But he was really gentle with me, and he, he let me see this stuff as I could see it. I could only see what I could see. You know, I can't see uh, then what I could see now after 10 years of, of really rigorously working the steps. Of course, I, I see things differently. At the time, he showed me what it was I could see. And um, you know what I, what I was shown gradually was that it just wasn't going to be any other way for me. You know, This is the way it was going to be. Um, like I said, I would be presented with a problem and I would turn it into seven problems. Well, why is that if I'm not stupid? Or I'm not, you know, why, well, how is that something that, that happens? Well, I look through a different lens than most people. You know, I have a tinted lens. And uh, I, I always look at uh, the alcoholism inside of me as like a corrupt prosecutor that really thinks a guy is guilty. Even though the guy isn't guilty, he really believes it. You know, and he's like, it's this dude, I know he did it. And you're like, uh, boss, I don't think so. This other guy confessed and that guy was in Peru. You know? <laughs> you know? Uh, and he's like, nope, he did it. That, that's what alcoholism is like inside my mind. It really believes I'm not going to cut it. I'm not going to make it. I'm not good enough. I'm not going to cut the grade, the mustard, whatever. And it sees proof of this everywhere in the world. You know, and until I can break through those delusions, you know, in the big book we don't have denial. We have delusions. You know, a delusion is a persistent false psychotic belief. Psychosis being a condition whereby the sufferer is unable to tell whether what he thinks about the world is really true. That's mental illness, you know? And that's the way I look at the world. I look at the world through a tinted lens looking for proof that I'm not good enough and finding it everywhere. You know, I could be walking down a street, my favorite favorite stock resentment. I had hundreds of these, you know? Walking down the street, good-looking guy and a good-looking gal coming the other way, immediately don't like them. No idea why but something's going off inside of me. Now, it doesn't feel good to feel like a loser all the time, but to feel less than all the time. So I feel resentful so I can have the illusion of power, you know. I'm still feeling crappy inside, but I I feel good for three seconds, you know. So I see this couple coming down the street, and that prosecutor is saying, I don't know how it links up, but you suck somehow. You are not good, and here's the proof, you know. And my mind starts manufacturing evidence right away. It's like, yeah, you know, uh, how come this guy's girlfriend's better than your girlfriend? Better looking than your girlfriend. Or I don't have a girl. This guy probably thinks I'm gay, and that's somehow important. You know? I don't even know these people. But, you know, and I've always been a little guy. So if the guy's bigger than me, I'm like, he probably thinks he can take me. You know? I'm 30, and I'm thinking like I'm in the eighth grade. You know, I I actually took martial arts for five years because of that kind of thought. You know, and the more I learned, the more dangerous I became, the more frightened I was. You know, it didn't work. You know, it didn't work for what I was trying to to, uh, accomplish, you know, and I don't feel good. So delusions kick in. You know, I I have to I have to make something up. So I'll self-seek in my now I don't I'm not walking around aware that I'm doing this, you know, but my mind kicks in a gear. Now I got a defense attorney who's gonna stick up for me. Sadly he's appointed by my alcoholic mind. (laughs) So the defense attorney instead of just saying court, this isn't none of this is true. You're fine the way you are. You know, when I was born, I was absolutely perfect. I never understood that until I started taking care of this autistic guy. It's what I do for a living. The, the guy, he, he's, he's, you know, he's different. You know, he wears headphones that aren't attached to anything. He wears an afghan around the house. Uh, you know, and this guy is beautiful. He, he's so perfect the way he is. I wouldn't change a thing about this guy. And it never dawned on me that I was absolutely perfect the, the way that I was created. And all my imperfections are what make me me, you know. I never got that. So I, I lost my train of thought thinking about my little buddy. Um Thanks. Randy. My defense attorney. So instead of just saying <laughs> instead of just saying, kid, that none of this is true. It makes up like a side story, you know, like, well, look at the size of this goof. He's probably on steroids, you know, can't, can't perform sexually because of the steroids, <laughs> slaps it around, and who wants to be with a girl that will put up with a guy like that, you know, <laughs> you know? You know? and I feel better for nine seconds. You know? I feel great. You know, and, and that doesn't last long, so I'm constantly putting a Band-Aid on cancer. You know, I'm constantly taking these little uh, uh, anesthetics to feel better uh, about this. You know, I get home, I don't you know, feel good. What am I going to do? How am I going to feel better? How am I going to feel better? Well, I'll call a girl that I don't care about at all, but who likes me, and, you know, vampire some self-esteem off of her. I feel good for three seconds. You know, I'll have sex with somebody I don't really care about. Feel great for ten minutes. Two minutes. <laughs> two minutes. I caught myself lying again. <laughs> Try to run an honest program, what can I tell you? You know, and it, and it doesn't sink in that, that these... Uh, Skills, these tools I am using to feel better are making me feel worse in the long run. Of course, adding problems, you know, to life, creating a lot of, uh, you know, havoc, unfortunate situations, inflicting myself on other people, and I and I don't get it. My uh, my first sponsor, sponsor, who was a, a good buddy of mine, I love this guy. Um, he he uh, the man was a genius. He once said to me, you know, if you think and act like a scumbag. You feel like a scumbag. I'm like, this guy's brilliant. <laughs> really? You know? And I mean, I can look back and say that. But the truth is, I didn't know I was thinking like a guy. Sc- I'm like, yeah, this is how you think. This is how you know. And I didn't know that when you think and act like a respectful son, you feel like a respectful son. And when you think and act like a a caring partner, you feel that way. And those things feel good. You know, when you become that person. That, that's what feels good, you know, not having some guy think I'm a good, you know. And, I mean, so many uh, things were just so clear now that, that weren't clear then. You know, um, I, I remember being a little kid, uh, you know, I was like, well, I wasn't that little. I guess I was about 16, and uh, my dad used to come to the bowling alley and keep score for me, you know, which is wicked cool until you're like 12, so he would come and keep score for me. And there was a girl on my team named Lori who was uh, also 16. We were in the same homeroom. Now, I looked 12. I wasn't always the strapping 5'8 1⁄2", 162-pounder that you see before you. When I graduated high school, I was about 5'2". So in 10th grade, I was about 5 feet tall, 97 pounds. I remember that because I remember there was a linebacker on the high school football team who used to say, man, if you gain 3 pounds, you can be a 100-pound weakling. Which, again, your laughter hurts me. So that's where I was. I was 5 feet tall. I looked about 12 years old. And... uh, Lori, who's on my bowling team, is also 16, but she's 16 going on 20. She's that cheerleader that the other cheerleaders dislike on general principle. <clears throat> Just because she's so pretty and blah, blah, blah. She's dating a guy 23 years old who owns buildings in town and has his name on the side of vehicles. And my dad says to the older guys in the league, because old, older guys in high school are helpful. They always want to help the young guys out. So dad says, hey, don't you think these two would make a cute couple? You know, it would have been slightly less painful if he had shoved the scoring pencil through my retina (laughs) than saying that, because dad, everybody knows Court and Lori don't make any kind of couple. You know, that's what the alcoholism felt like. And that scared me because now everybody knows it, and my task there from there forward was to keep you from finding out that I'm not going to be the kind of guy that gets lorries in the world, and that's apparently important. You know, if you got lorry, you're okay. Everybody knows you're okay. You know, I remember certain points in my life where I had the lorry, and I'd be walking down the street, and I'd be the guy with a good-looking girl, you know, and I'd see a guy coming the other way by himself, and I'd think, that lucky bastard. If I could just get rid of her... (laughs) I could have the same freedom that this guy has, you know I never grasped that I was the constant in both equations. You know, it never came to me. I would go out with the same girl sometimes, eight, nine times, I went out with one girl. You know, unhappy with her, unhappy without her. I never grasped I was the constant in the equation. She was a variable. I was unhappy. In in both instances, and I I couldn't piece together why, you know, it was because I was severely mentally and emotionally ill, you know, and there was never going to be any combination, you know, of things that were going to make me happy. And I thought that was the case for a time. If I could just have a long enough winning streak, I was a degenerate gambler for years. If I could just have a long enough winning streak, or get the right girl, or live in the right, you know, there was no set of circumstances that was going to change the fact. That I was afflicted and was going to remain that way. So uh, coming in, uh, I was shown this stuff gradually. I was, uh, you know, I, I dove into the steps and uh, I began to see these things. And you know, uh, working the steps initially, it gave me self knowledge about why I was kooky and why my life was not good. Um, but that, in and of itself, was not going to uh, change things, because, you know, <laughs> there were times when, like, I was cognizant enough to know, like, well, this is a bad idea, you know, it's like I was completely oblivious all the time, but, um, you know, the self-knowledge helped, but it, for a guy like me, it was going to take a complete psychic change, you know, and that sounds free, I'm like, psychic change, I don't know, if I- is that like Cleo, what are we talking about with the psychic change stuff? you know, um, later in our, in, in our steps it says, you know, since it, it, I don't know what you guys do, but in, in step two in, in AA it says, uh, you know, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. It doesn't say anything about actually being restored to sanity for a long time. <laughs> Feels like ages. You know, it mentions it in step two. The first time it says anything about me actually behaving sanely, shockingly, is steps 10 and 11. That's a long-ass time. (laughs) That's a long way to go, man. So I'm like, uh, I didn't think, heaven, I didn't know that at the time. I wasn't aware of that, but I was like, wow. And the first sane reaction they talk about is in this tenth step where they say, if tempted... By alcohol for me. Now, as an alcoholic, the same thing would be to reject alcohol if I was tempted by it, right? I've never done that in my entire life to the point I've come to Alcoholics Anonymous. So in step 10, it says, if tempted, we recoil as from a hot flame. I'm like, that's kind of crazy, but okay. I was about eight or nine months sober. And uh, I still go on this golf trip 15 years now. And I was about eight or nine months sober, so this was like ten ten years ago. And uh, my best friend, who's not an alcoholic, comes out and he throws me a a beer, you know. And uh, I caught that thing, and I was like, what the hell are you thinking? And I threw it. It was like a hand grenade, you know. (laughs) I threw it right back at him. That's recoiling as from a hot flame. That doesn't reflect a change in thought process. Like, my old thought process was like, one? What am I going to do with this? I hope you're back with another one before I finish. You know, it, it doesn't reflect a change in thought process. Like, okay, wait a minute. Now, often when I drink beer, in fact, on this golf course, I am naked. Greenskeeper frowns on that. You know, I I didn't, like, stop and think, like, well, if I drink, that could be bad. You know, that wasn't it. I recoiled as from a hot flame. That is a psychic change with regard to alcohol. You know, I used to think, act, and react one way. Now I think, act, and react a completely different way. Now, for a guy like me, the only way for something like that to occur that I'm familiar with in they're could be other ways, but my experience of how that happened was I had a vital spiritual experience caused by working the steps. Um, I don't even think it was the steps. I think it, it was that they led me to a higher power somehow. And you know, and they have a way of doing that even if you don't want to get there. You know, <laughs> the steps were steps for me to build a relationship with a higher power that could completely revolutionize my thinking. In the back of the book when they talk about the spiritual experience, they they say change about a billion different ways. They say change three or four times, but they say, you know, talk about a revolution. That's an overthrowing of the way that I think. And when that beer went back the other way, that was definitely a different uh, reaction than I ever had before. What I needed in AA and in my life was to learn to react completely differently to life and its circumstances than the way I had reacted before. You know, I had my old way of thinking, and it was still my way of thinking. that didn't change just because I I wrote a thorough inventory down in four and I read it to somebody in five. That was, you know, we have a thing sometimes where I come from where there's so much emphasis put on the fourth and fifth steps, primarily the fourth step, that there's this notion that once I've done that, I've somehow graduated to a degree. I've done this massive amount of work. We read these marathon, uh, you know, fifth steps, and I've somehow arrived. That's like a diagnosis. You know, I found out what the problem was in four and five. I wasn't relieved from it. That's just for me. You know, it's like going to the doctor, and he says, wow, man, you got cancer, but it's a good thing we caught it. Get right to the hospital. I think you're going to be all right, but get in there today. So the guy goes to the hospital. He runs into the doctor at that same hospital six months later. And the doctor's like, man, you look like death warmed over. What happened? You look terrible. And he's like, I don't know, man, but they got wonderful cookies in the cafeteria. The nurses are cute as hell, you know, new magazines in in the front. It's great. The guy showed up at the hospital, but he didn't get any treatment, you know? Like, I can show up, but I've got to do the number for me to to get well. I've got to take the actions that are going to heal my alcoholism. And for me, I found out what needed fixing in four and five, and now I need to go out and and make the change. And uh, most of uh, what's happened for me and most of the change for me has been... uh, you know, much later, and uh, really in, in 10 and 11, but I, I really don't even think about it that way and break it down, and I'm like, okay, this is a 10th step. This is a, I think of it now as it's just a way of life. It's the way they describe it. I don't get over analytical. There was a period of time that <laughs> you're probably like, you don't get over analytical. What are you talking about? Um, this is less analytical for me. <laughs> um, it was a period of time where I was so into the book that I really wanted to be a scholar of the book. And, uh, you know, I, I know so much about what's on what page. And I, I was made to look up words, and I know what this word means, and I know what that word means. And uh, the more knowledge I get and the more uh, I dive into the book, the more people will think I have the answers, and then I'm hip. And that's what will make me feel better. When I can get there, that's what recovery is really like. When everybody thinks I know something, you know, and um, they warn us about that, and they say, You gotta step off the bridge of reason, you know, capital R, onto the desired shore of faith. And I had to go through all that stuff to learn the truth about me. And it's so simple, and I'm so shallow that I hate to tell you, because I suspect you may not think I'm a genius if I just tell you the truth. The, the, the truth is that uh, when something comes up today and I, I feel what I was given in, the, in that process is sort of a little bell that goes off, you know. And that bell's been going off since I was born. I just ignored it. I turned up the music, you know. When that bell goes off, I know something's off kilter. And all I can do about it is pause, identify what's going on, ask for it to be removed, and go to God to direct me to what he would have me be. That's the entire plan. If I could have done that, I wouldn't have to be here today. You know, I would have a different speaker if I could simply do that. And, I mean, even if I paused and went to God 20 years ago, I, I didn't have a relationship with God, but my mind was so filtered with insanity. Uh, you know, th- I just misinterpreted things, and I, I just couldn't get it. Um, you know, the fellowship gave me the ability to, to uh, break down my thinking and see how it was kooky. And now that I've done that, okay, I can move on. And, I mean, I still have to take inventory. I still do that. Uh, but what I've been given is this little bell that goes off, and I can just pause and see, look at what's going on. You know, if I'm, if I'm angry, if I'm frustrated, something's going on, I got fear, I can pause and, and, and see what the right thing is to do. One of the real gifts was uh, I saw how my myriad of fears, uh, just, you know, many, 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 many fears. I had all these natural knee-jerk reactions to fear, and uh, it's really crazy. The the way I was taken through, I would have a fear, and uh, I would react to it the same way when I was 30 that I did when I was, like, 8 or 12, or 17, and I was able to see that, and I'm like, wow, I might slick it up a little bit, but I was basically pulling the same song and dance, you know, and and I could give you a a couple of examples, to say, I have an idea of what I'm talking about, there's one that always pops to mind, and I hate it, because it's not, it's not even a fear anymore, and it's stupid, but it's just that it's so easy to chronicle, because my reaction was the same, and I think every heterosexual man on, on the planet has a fear. But I, I had a fear of being gay, right? And uh, it first came up when some guy on my paper route exposed himself to me. And, uh, you know, here's my reaction to the fear. Now, this is how I'm a little different. A lot of, I'm sure most little kids wouldn't enjoy that experience. Uh, my reaction was, what is it about me that this guy picked me? To, you know, is it the way I'm carrying my paper bag? You know, in and, and that, that's my alcoholic thinking at work already, making everything that ever happened somehow about me and meaning something bad. You know, a few years later, I don't know how I... we weren't I was more naive back then. We weren't as aware of, uh, of things... As uh, we are now, I remember this guy had me and my buddy. We were sixteen. Help him move his toy store from one town to uh, to our town, you know. And uh, when he had me alone, he's like, "Hey, would you like to come over and watch some some pornos?" You know. And I'm thinking, well, that's kind of odd. I don't, you know, I don't think so, you know. And I asked my buddy, and he's like, don't tell anybody, you know. And I'm like, okay. So I asked my buddy, hey, did Bob ask you to come over and watch pornos? And he looks, and he's like, what? What are you talking about? So again, I'm like, wait a minute. Why is this guy asking me? It had nothing to do with me. If I could have just simply asked an adult, a trusted adult, but already I'm afraid, what if I go to my dad and say this? And, and he's like, what's wrong with you? What are you doing? You know, I, I just had this filter up. So I couldn't just ask. And, and, and see what the, the thing was. These things had nothing to do with me, and there were different instances. You know, I had different thoughts. I mean, I can't control the thoughts that go through my head even now. So why could I affect them then when I was really in the midst of insanity? And I, I've had thoughts and keep them to myself. And, you know, a fear would come up, and my reaction in this instance would be, don't tell anybody. Keep it to yourself, you know. The train of circumstances are different in each fear. This one is, you know, I, I ended up having doubts about my own sexuality, and, uh, you know, I, I kept more things to myself. And, uh, you know, the simple answer was just talk to somebody about it. Just tell the truth, like, hey, this is what's going on. What do you think? And, um, you know, that, that happened over and over and over again. I would react to a fear, and I would cause what I was afraid of to happen half the time. You know, I'd be afraid I was going to fail a test. So what what would I do? You know, I would would put off studying for it. I wouldn't do this. I wouldn't, you know, I was afraid people weren't going to think I was smart enough. When I was in fourth grade, I was in the third percentile in the country on these goofy tests they give kids. And everybody said, isn't that wonderful? Court's so smart. And I was like, oh, my God, they're going to find out how smart I'm really not. I never studied again. I got seized deliberately. Thinking like if I get a C without studying, that's way better than an A minus if I study, because they know. You know, and I had all these kind of crazy genius complexes, and I'm not. I, what it was was I grew up in a house full of adults, and I heard a lot of words that kids in my class didn't hear, so they thought I was a hell of a lot smarter than I really was. You know, I'm pretty bright, but I mean that. You know, that's the that's the truth. I'm not. You know, I'm not an Einstein. And uh, I I would react to these fears, and I would cause things to happen with my reaction to the fear. I would always cause something negative to happen. So as I was taken through this inventory, I was able to see, wow, um, my reactions are pretty much the same at 30 as they are when I'm 5. And I could see that I had caused a lot of the destruction. The simple solution for that is when that comes up to pause and ask myself to be guided. And I'll just give you one quick example of that. Um, I was with my dad, who's a, a, an old, kooky guy. He's, uh, he's 83, and he was born in, in a different time, and uh, we're, we're very good friends today. But he's, you know he is 83. We're not exactly on the same page sometimes. So we're in a supermarket in the middle of Maine, and uh, my dad loves this store. It's his favorite store. He's in there for the second time that day, but this is just how my dad talks. He's in there, God, you know, swearing, God damn, yeah, I spent a fortune in this place, you know, and like the the cashiers looking at him, and this cashier's looking at him, and the bag boy's looking at him, and uh, I'm I want to sell him out, you know, I want my instinct and my gut is to throw him under the bus. You know, shrug to the cashier. Yeah, I don't know. You out crazy. Roll my eyes at the other cashier, you know, shrug shrug at the bag boy and you know, distance myself from the old nut, you know. And the thing is, this guy's my father. This this guy never sold me out. Never. You know, he wanted a little insurance salesman. You know, that isn't me you know he never sold me out this guy would cut off his arm for me when i was screwing up my life and smashing up cars this guy tried to help me he never turned his back on me but yet i'm such a coward that i would sell him out over the opinion of a 16 year old bag boy in maine that i'm never going to see again and i felt it coming up and i was so sad that you know i was 7 or 8 years sober at the time that uh, I was still so gutless as to this would be my natural instinct, you know, and that's how I would create things. I would have reacted to that fear. I would have sold them out, and then I would have felt bad for being a coward. And we would have gotten in the car, and I would have argued with him, Dad. Why are you going to be such an old kook? Don't people don't care about what you have to say? Why do you have to flirt with a waitress? Blah blah blah, you know. And I would have blamed him, and I would have been completely ignorant of the fact that the reason I felt crappy was because. I had just done something lousy because I was gutless. And I at least had enough awareness at this point to pause and, and be aware of it and say, God, remove this, this fear of what these people think. Direct me to what you would have me be. What is that? A respectful son. I felt a little sad again because I realized I don't know how to do that. You know? You'd know, think 37, 38 years old, seven or eight years of recovery, you'd know how to be a respectful son. I said, how do I be a respectful son? <clears throat> Just shut up. Keep your mouth shut. <laughs> don't shrug at the bag boy. Don't <laughs> sell him out to the cashier. They don't care anyway, you know. And uh help the old man with the groceries. He's eighty. You know, instead standing there like a mope, you know. And uh and I did that and I took the things out and, and I I realized, you know, I had a, a, you know, it's probably basic common sense for most people, but it was a revelation for me. You know, and when I walked out of there, this doesn't happen to me all the time. I've had a lot of cool spiritual experiences, but, you know, not not in a while. Getting a little resentful about that. uh, (laughs) But, you know, as I walked out, I felt overwhelmed by how much love I had for this guy. And how cute he was, you know, in his little old shopping cart and his little goof and his car that you could fit three acres of land in, you know. And, uh, you know, and I'm walking out and I just put my arm around him and I'm like, I love you, dad. And he's like, what is wrong with this kid? You know? He's looking at me like, what now? You know, I mean, I cry at red lights practically now. You know, I'm a softie. You know, we're in the car and I'm all choked up and he's just driving back to the cottage, you know. And it wouldn't have been that way in the past. You know, I, I would have started a fight with them and it would have been all those other ways. And, and that's just, you know, one, one little example. But that's really how my life has been recreated, um, by pausing and by letting God direct me. And, uh, you know, I thought, I could, oh, man, if I'm, if I'm sober, what am I going to be able to do? I, I can't do anything. If I'm, oh, if I'm leading a spiritual life, you know, I can't do anything. Well, you know, I do a lot of cool stuff that I never did. I never went anywhere from from the bar stool. I never went anywhere And the last couple of years because of AA and, and other other things. You know, I've traveled all over the world doing cool stuff and you know, um I was worried about losing myself, you know, in, in AA they call it the being the becoming the hole in the donut. What's going to be left if I take away my defects? I got nothing else, you know. And uh, really, it has just been a self-discovery that uh, there was never anything wrong with me in the first place. And I just need to figure out who I am and and be that person and and embrace that. And I can do anything if I put God first. I can do absolutely anything. And I was so worried I was going to live this boring life. And some old dude in AA, sometimes they seem to know something. You know, he's like, you know, God's probably got a, a... Good amount of people in church, so if somebody goes in there, he's probably already got people stationed there. He may need you in some other locales that aren't manned right now, you know. And uh, you know, I I do a lot of cool stuff that uh, that I didn't expect to do, and I and um, you know, I meet. I hate to sound so corny, but I meet angels everywhere. You know, and, and that's, you know, in poker tournaments and at rock concerts and in bands. And, you know, there there are really cool people that uh, that God works through everywhere. And uh, when I found out I could just do that and be myself, I thought that was pretty cool. And, um, you know, it, it feels pretty good to be a tool in the hand of the master. I heard one guy say it that way, and, and I used to like... like well, but why in the world, I would think of myself I'd be like, why would God use me? I'm like a broken toothpick, you know. He could pick up a chisel and chisel out Mount Rushmore. Why would he use me, you know, because he can, you know. And uh, some of the greatest messengers to me have been a lot of broken toothpicks, you know, people who uh, were really beat up. You know, uh, the, the guy who absolutely saved my life was living in a box in an alley a uh, few years before I met him. You know, and that guy, I don't think I'd be here today. You'd have a different speaker if it weren't for that guy. You know, so uh, I'm just happy to be here and be included in, in your conference. Uh, thanks so much for having me, and uh, have a great weekend. <laughs>